This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs? Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead, and today I'm joined by Professor Michael McCann, Director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute, law.unh.edu slash S-E-L-I, if you want to learn more about it. He's also a uh, regular columnist for Sportico, and he's joining me today to talk about some of his recent articles. How's it going? I'm doing well, AJ. How about yourself? I'm doing well, thanks. Let's uh, start off with with Deshaun Watson, who's facing a shocking number of civil lawsuits, which is counted up to 23 as of uh, close of business Tuesday. Uh, what's going on here with this? Yeah, that's right, AJ. So Deshaun Watson, the quarterback for the Cleveland Browns, the quarterback who received the largest guaranteed money in any NFL contract, faces 23 lawsuits brought by women who say that he hired them to provide massage services. Uh, They've argued that he committed assault among other civil infractions. Now a grand jury declined to indict him. So the criminal part of his situation is, is been resolved at least for now, unless there's another grand jury, assuming there's none that will be resolved, but he does face 23 losses. And the 23rd was filed this week by a woman, Nia Smith, who watched an HBO Real Sports episode on him and and was really offended by the manner in which Watson's attorneys tried to debunk the accusers. And she said she wasn't intending to join the number of uh, women that are suing, but she's decided to bring a lawsuit. So he now faces 23 lawsuits and in all likelihood an NFL suspension that could be pretty long. Yeah, this is the uh, difficult spot where you've um, the NFL has to deal with contracts with all these athletes. And I mean, how often do you see it built into the contract if there's a certain level of uh, civil lawsuits and of this nature impacting uh, the future of an athlete with the league? Yeah, so the NFL prefers more ambiguous language than that. They don't want the test to be a lawsuit or a crime. They they want it to be what what's been collectively bargained as conduct detrimental. That's the phrase that they use. So conduct detrimental, which could be all sorts of things. It doesn't have to be illegal conduct, nor does it have to be conduct that a court finds illegal. The NFL has suspended players who were not convicted of crimes or in some cases even sued. So the the league prefers the conduct detrimental moniker as a way of distinguishing sort of its authority to say the legal system isn't the test you know what what's necessary for a charge or in the case of a civil lawsuit preponderance of the evidence that's not our test our test is whether we decide you engaged in conduct detrimental does the team itself that the athletes a part of have a certain level of authority before it reaches the nfl is like does the nfl ultimately have the ultimate say yeah, so the team can all the team also has grounds to suspend the player. Now, often we can wonder whether the team wants to take a player off the field. So it really depends on the situation. But there is also a rule, a one penalty rule, where the, the team and the NFL can't both punish the player. It can only be one punishment. But that doesn't mean that a player can't be punished twice. So in this case, 
if the NFL suspends Deshaun Watson this summer for games beginning in the fall, and then months from now, additional accusers come forward, the NFL conceivably could suspend him again. So the, the, he's, in a, he's in a position where obviously if 23 people are suing you for the same essential type of misconduct, it does raise concern for the NFL, even if Watson is, is, should be relieved that the criminal part of the story has been addressed. Has uh, Watson spoken up at all uh, post the grand jury? Yeah, he during uh, the press conference when he was traded to the Browns and signed by the Browns, he reiterated his innocence. He has consistently said he's innocent, that he didn't do anything wrong. I, I think it invites the question of even if he didn't br- break the law, he, did he do things that were at a minimum, again, at a minimum, very irresponsible or offensive clearly when there are 23 people and maybe there are others right these are 23 that are suing there may be others that believe that he acted in an offensive way again offensive is maybe charitable based on some of the allegations against him so but he has said that he's he didn't commit any wrongs and and he has to his i guess to his credit has been consistent in saying he didn't break the law Two hundred thirty million dollar liability for the Browns in the NFL. I mean, that's going to be tough for them to stomach. Yeah, and the so if he's so his his contract for this upcoming season is structured in a way that almost all of the money, I think forty five million of the forty six million, is in a signing bonus. And the significance of that is that if he's suspended, he'll only be docked his base pay, which is only a million. Obviously, millions a lot of money, but when 45 million is tied up in a signing bonus and that's not subject to a suspension, he would still get paid most of his money. If a suspension continues or is brought next year in 2023, then the penalty to him would be pretty pretty financially significant because every game he'd be docked a piece of his salary. Moving over to uh, another case that's on, that's going on right now with uh, Nicholas v. Nicholas. Uh, th- this really goes to show the multifaceted nature of sports law where we're moving from uh, civil and criminal uh, charges against an athlete to an intellectual property case. So what's going on here? Yeah, so Jack Nicholas is maybe the maybe the most uh, famed golfer. I, I don't know. I guess Tiger Woods might have eclipsed him in terms of when he played. But Jack Nicholson is a superstar golfer that is now 82 years old but but the legal significance is back in 2007 he sold his right of publicity and his trademarks and other intellectual property to a company that's called nicholas companies for about 145 million dollars and so that company now makes money off of his name image and likeness and other ip but there's now a debate or a dispute, I should say, between what that contract covers and the things that he's doing. The company says that he has engaged in conduct that betrays his contractual obligations, that he has uh, essentially tried to dub- to sort of uh, you know, double up, if you will. He's already being paid by the company and now he's trying to do his own separate deal, at least that's what the company alleges. And it's gotten tied up into a a related issue involving Saudi Arabia and another arrival to the PGA Tour called LIV Golf, where the argument is that he explored endorsing it. 
which would have been problematic with the PGA Tour and maybe hurt his brand. At least that's what the company has argued. So there's a lot going on here. But the interesting thing is just the idea that an athlete or an entertainer can sell their IP. Even when that happens, the contract might not clarify the boundaries of, of all activities. Yeah, because I mean, you can sell your name, image, and likeness rights, but continue to be an athlete that continues to play, like in this situation. Right. So, and he did continue, and continue just to be a big name. For instance, within this lawsuit, there's an allegation that he was was approached by a video game company about a golf game, and that he basically said no, and the company said, well, you can't say no. That we, we decide if you're going to be in the game. Uh, so this is interesting about like, you know, what, what do we control? Do we even control ourselves? Well, the answer is yes, unless we sell it. And the company is going to say, look, you got $145 million plus other stuff. So you can't, you can't complain about giving up your IP if you're getting paid 145 million bucks. Yeah, how often does it happen where an athlete will sell their their intellectual property rights like this, but still be active in the industry? Yeah, it's not very common, honestly. I mean, we see this in the music industry, I think, yeah. more, right? The, it's not as prevalent in sports. And I think, AJ, part of it goes to what you just said, that athletes, I mean, they have a limited window of life to make money in most mm-hmm. cases, right? Not true with a legendary golfer, perhaps, but in most cases, athletes have this kind of brief window where they're not likely thinking about selling their IP. They're more likely thinking about making money in endorsements. Uh, it's it's different with entertainers where they their longevity. If you're a, if you're a musician, I mean, look at look at some famous people. Look at the Beatles, right? Look yeah. at um, Michael Jackson, Prince, whatever. A lot of them made money, substantial money over decades. And even when their music careers may be sort of waned a bit, they continue to be celebrities. So it is a little bit different with entertainers than with athletes. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of um, the conflict around the Joe Rogan podcast with all those uh, those musicians. What was the, the primary musician that was headlining that uh, i'm spacing his name right now but either way yeah. he didn't actually it doesn't doesn't matter ultimately he didn't actually own the rights to his music that was on the platform so it like these these matters are a lot more complex than just a headline can portray yeah absolutely and i think especially in the entertainment industry where there are other players involved if you will i mean there's the broadcast company there's the record i mean there's just a lot of it's, it's, it is a more complicated arrangement. It's complicated in sports, but I think even more so in entertainment. And it's kind of a uh, morbid way of, of looking at it, but does it simplify after the athlete or entertainer passes away and it just goes to an estate? Yeah, I mean, and that goes to the right of publicity, which varies by states, right? In some states, the right of publicity lasts after death for a certain number of years and others it doesn't. So for estate attorneys, they really have to structure the while the person is alive arrangements that ensure that they'll continue that their their families will still get that money where is it going with the nicholas v nicholas suit there'll be a response and there'll be an answer to the complaint he's issued a statement denying any wrongdoing Uh, in all likelihood this gets settled out of court if i had to guess 
Let's move over to uh, the latest in the Varsity Blues uh, scandal that that was just all over the headlines over the last couple of years uh, with so many celebrities involved with it, especially in some top-tier colleges uh, wrapped up in, in this. Uh, what's the latest in it? I see you uh, wrote an article around a, uh, a father who's involved with the case. Yeah, so most of the parents cut deals with prosecutors and basically took short prison terms but one dad didn't john wilson who's a private equity investor who had three kids go to colleges under the under what the government has said was illegal activity through operation varsity blues and he got the because he didn't cut a deal and he was convicted he got a really long prison term he got 15 months and he's appealed the conviction and he'll remain out uh, out on bail while while pending the appeal but he has argued essentially one he shouldn't be grouped with these other parents if you if if you've seen the netflix movie if you know if you've read about operation varsity blues it involves parents that essentially fake the system right they they had fake photos of their kids playing sports they had SAT proctors being bribed to change scores. They had people at colleges being directly bribed, coaches and others. Wilson says he didn't do anything like that. He, he none of his kids, he argues, may, were accepted on the merits that their scores weren't altered. There are no fake photos of them playing sports. Wilson did donate to a, a, what turned out to be a sham foundation of rick singer who is the guy that masterminded all of this and that brought him into the conspiracy but his lawyers have argued he shouldn't be in the conspiracy and that shouldn't have been told to jurors because he argues he didn't bribe anyone that he didn't pay anyone at any school and his kids didn't have these other benefits that some of the other parents kids did so it's an interesting appeal. It also brings up the question of sort of why is this a crime, right? which I think some of yeah, that, that was a, that was a big question at the onset. Like we, there's always this um, the the cynical look at a lot of the the top tier Ivy leagues and such that it's kind of pay to play, who you know, like things like that. Uh, like at what point is this gray is this a gray area passed into now you're breaking the law? Yeah, I mean, if a wealthy family donates money to a college that's legal. And even if that money is intended to make it more likely that their kids get accepted, that's legal. And I think we can we can fairly say it helps in many cases, right? It, it's, it's not an equal playing field. So here, the parents didn't do that. They chose the side door, as it's been called, that they gave money, less money, instead of giving millions, they give six figures to Rick Singer, who then games the system and ensures that their kids get into the college so they have more certainty that their kids will be accepted and it's less money the government argues it's a crime because of something called honest services wire fraud and the the basic gist of it is that when a parent wires money to rick singer who then in turn bribes someone at a college the college is being deprived of the honest services of that employee and that that creates the crime. Now, some have argued you know, th- that's not what the law. What that, that this was this is a mafia law. This, this is not mafia activity. That this is sort of overreach by prosecutors. Uh, and this is a recurring criticism of just criminal law in general. That 
what what's passed as a criminal law gets expanded in scope into things that were never intended and that that's a recurring theme in this litigation as well and I'd imagine with with John Wilson case, the fact that he's donating to to, to Singer's uh, organization here, it, it's even if he didn't directly change anything, maybe there there's a certain level of well, of course it was easier to get in because of who you know and your association with what was going on. Yeah, and and the prosecutors have said, look, you you didn't give the money at a charity; you gave the money in a transaction, right? You didn't pick this charity. You know, this isn't some fighting some disease charity, right? This is, you picked a specific charity with the intent that it would help your kids get into college. And I, th- I think a lot, so the question then becomes, should that be, should that include him into this conspiracy involving other parents that maybe did worse? Maybe, you know, having, pay, bribing an SAT exam proctor you could argue seems worse that you're you know, sort of changing, literally cheating scores or fake photos of kids playing sports. I, mean, I don't know what's worth, but it, but I, you can make an argument that that kind of stuff seems different than what he did. And that's what his argument is, that he shouldn't have been brought into this conspiracy when what he did, even if wrong, he's going to argue doesn't rise to that level. And, and more importantly, is materially different that it ought not to be included and jurors shouldn't have been told that he's part of the same gang. Seems like the colleges have stayed really quiet in all this. So they just want to keep their their brand just as far away as humanly possible from these lawsuits. Well, the, uh, colleges are the victims in this story, at least yeah. based on the law, right? That they 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 were deprived. I imagine a lot of fraud uh, civil suits could be going around if they really wanted to. Sure, and I think it invites the question of just sort of the colleges have their own game in terms of getting donations, right? Mm-hmm. And if admissions offices are, they're, they're gonna probably deny that it plays an effect, but we, I think we could always be skeptical if parents are giving massive donations to colleges. If there's a wing at a, at a building named after a particular family, I think it's fair to assume that the children that apply or the grandkids that apply might have a little bit of a leg up. And if that's true, it sort of goes back to, is this much worse? I mean, and I think that, yeah, that well, the college isn't getting the money, but does that make it, does that make it bad, if you will? Uh, someone else is getting the money. It's, it's an interesting story. It's also a story just about sort of merit and access. And we know that this has come up in litigation about who gets accepted into elite colleges uh, there are issues of, of race that have come up with that. There, there's a litigation invo- involving uh, Asian American applicants who have argued that they have have been given treated illegally, uh, that they have the the most disadvantage in applying based on how admissions processes are conducted. And so there there's a lot of levers to this that the Operation Varsity Blues is sort of part of a story that uh, I think. Uh, and I don't know if we'll ever get untangled, but but certainly raises a lot of questions. Professor Michael McCann, director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute and writer for Sportico. Follow him on Twitter at McCann Sports Law. Thank you so much for joining me. You got it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.